Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now today we're going to be concluding a a three-part message series that we have entitled Current, Navigating the Waters of Today's Same-Sex Culture. And as we've been saying all along, this is really one message that is given over three weeks. And so if it's your first time to be here today, just realize that this is the last part of the message and you've missed the first two parts. So if you've missed any of the elements before this, we would encourage you to go to our website at wildwoodchurch.org and you can click on either the audio links or the video links for our messages in this series. But as we conclude today, I want to actually direct our attention for just a moment to our graphic that is up there that we've been used for this series, we've been using for this series. And I want you to know that that graphic is very carefully chosen. There's some symbolism there that we thought was important. You will notice there is a group of seven people in the raft, and they are somewhat representative of our church family or your family. And then you'll notice that everyone there that is in the raft is alert and aware that they're in the middle of a strong current. They're not sleeping. They are very tuned in to what is happening. Also, I want you to notice in that graphic, there is a guy in a hat, and he is pointing the way. And he is a picture of how God's truth is our guide as we navigate the waters of today's same-sex culture. You will also notice there is a gal in the rear with an oar, and she is steering. And just a picture of how we are to be leading our families as we navigate this strong current in our day. And then lastly, I want you to notice that they are in a life raft. They are not on the shoreline uh, watching the current carry people away. They're involved in having a mindset, I think, that we need to have a mindset that we are open as the strong current is happening in our culture to rescuing people who may be struggling in the current. We want to have a mindset that we are ready to extend the gospel of grace to people. Now, remember, we stated from the beginning that our aim is to reflect the heart of Christ. And Jesus is described as one who was full of grace and truth. So we have been saying that our desire as a church is to be what? Full of grace and truth. And last week, we looked at an awful lot of truth. We looked at a lot of the primary passages that address the issue of homosexuality in the Bible. And so if you didn't get there or didn't get that information, please go back and retrieve all of that, listen to that or view that. But briefly what I want to do today is look at one more passage of Scripture that is often used to imply that Jesus was very positive towards homosexual behavior. A number of years ago, I went to Anchorage, Alaska to speak at a Weekend to Remember um, marriage getaway there, and some people asked me if I would make an appearance on secular radio there on KUDO radio 
in Anchorage, and so I went there. Basically, the idea was that we were promoting marriage in the weekend to remember, but as I was on the secular station, you can imagine the topic soon went to same-sex marriage, and we actually took phone calls from people uh, regarding all of this topic, and one person called in and said, hey, do you realize that Jesus talked about homosexuality in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 12. And so he, over the air, proceeded to read this verse to me. So remember, Jesus is discussing here in chapter 19 marriage, but let's just read what it says in verse 12. Jesus says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And this is what the caller said. He said, do you not know that the term eunuch was a term that was used to describe in that day homosexuals? And he said, the idea here is that this implies Jesus' approval of homosexuality. I mean, he says that some were born that way, and we should accept it. Not so the phone call came in. Well, how, how did I respond to that? Well, I said, sir, I'm sorry, but you are mistaken that this term eunuch, it was not used to describe people who were homosexuals, practicing homosexuals. In fact, the term eunuch refers to someone who was incapable of the marriage act, capable of performing, incapable of performing sexually, incapable of begetting children. See, in the ancient world, there were often men assigned to serve the royal family, especially the queen and her court. In fact, we have one of these gentlemen mentioned in the book of Acts at chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. And what they would do in that day often is they would take a male who was going to serve the queen and her court, all the females, and they would frequently castrate them. So therefore, they would be less of a threat to the women. That's what a eunuch was. So the Lord Jesus basically says here, there are three kinds of eunuchs. Number one, there are eunuchs who were born that way. In other words, when they were born, they were impotent due to genetic defects. Secondly, he says, there are eunuchs who were made by men. That means they were either castrated by other people or they were self-castrated. And then thirdly, he says, there are eunuchs who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus said there are certain individuals who choose celibacy in order to serve God more effectively, to serve God in the kingdom. And Jesus was an example of one of those males. John the Baptist was an example of one of those males. The apostle Paul was the example of one of those kinds of individuals. This passage has got nothing to do with homosexual practice at all. In fact, it's interesting. There are some 31,000 plus verses in the Bible And not one of them provides a positive perspective on homosexual practice. In fact, in Scripture, every passage that affirms sexuality, affirms sexuality between a man and a woman. Now, today we're we're going to be wrapping up our study, 
And I want to give you today's plan. Today in our time together, we're going to do three things. First of all, we're going to look at some questions. In fact, we're going to look at three questions. Then secondly, we're going to look at some perils, things that are awaiting us downstream. We're going to look at two of those. And then thirdly, we're going to look at some responses. How are we to respond? How should we then live in light of everything we've been covering? And we're going to look at three responses that we can have to the same-sex culture of our day. It's going to be a great time. You ready to go? Let's start off by looking at some questions. Here's the first question. Is it homosexuality inborn? Isn't it like your eye color or your race? Aren't you just born with it? And the idea behind that question is that if it's genetic, if I'm born this way, then it really can't be immoral. It must be affirmed. In fact, Mel White said this, if homosexuality is inborn, it is a gift from God to be embraced and celebrated and lived with integrity. Now, I don't have to tell most of you that that I am not a genetic scientist. I am not. But I have done a lot of reading and research, and I can tell you this, that being born a homosexual has not been proven by the scientific community to be a genetic thing at all. In fact, the number one most frequently cited study is a study by a man by the name of Simon LeVay who did his study in 1991. And what Simon LeVay did is after certain males had died, uh, he thought some of these people were probably homosexual and some of them were probably heterosexual. And so he was measuring the size of their brains. And he found out there was a variation in the size of brains. And then some jumped to the conclusion based on this study that homosexuality is inborn. We found genetic evidence of it. But that's not the case. In fact, three years after the study, this is what Simon LeVay said about his own study. He said, it's important to stress what I didn't find. I did not prove that homosexuality was genetic or find a genetic cause for being gay. I didn't show that gay men are born that way, which is the most common mistake people make in interpreting my work. This has not been proven to be something that is genetic, that we're born this way. In fact, lesbian author, Dr. Camille Paglia, said this, homosexuality is not normal. Now, she is a practicing homosexual herself. She says, it's not normal. No one is born gay. The idea is ridiculous. Homosexuality is an adaptation, not an inborn trait. And then I also want to quote psychiatrist Nathaniel S. Lehrman, who's the former chairperson of the Task Force on Religion and Mental Health, and this is what he says. Researchers now openly admit that after searching for more than 20 years, they are still unable to find the, quote, gay gene. It has not been proven that this is a genetic thing. But let me say this. Even if... Someday, a genetic link is verified that does not make homosexual behavior morally right. 
See, it's possible that we can be born with a genetic predisposition to something, but that doesn't mean we should act on it. For example, in the arena of alcoholism, now they can identify a particular gene in 77% of the cases that they believe indicates a predisposition to alcoholism. 77% of the cases. But that doesn't justify alcoholic behavior. You see, just because we have some inborn tendencies doesn't mean some of our behavior is acceptable. Predisposition does not mean predestination. And we've said this before, but all of us, every single one of us, me, you, all of us, have been born into sin. And part of that theologically means that we've experienced total depravity. What that means is that every dimension of our being has been tainted by sin. I have been tainted by sin in every dimension of my life, but it would be wrong to assume because I have been born with that, that God ordains and approves my sinful behavior. You see, some of us, any of us may be predisposed. We may have a certain tendency to anger. We may have a tendency towards violence. We may have a tendency towards greed. We may have a tendency towards lust, but that doesn't justify our acting out on that. Is homosexuality inborn? I don't think it is at all. No, no proof of that. Well, you might say, well, what are the causes? I mean, how does someone get to where they have these same-sex attractions? And I will say this, that the tendencies towards same-sex attraction often happen very, at a very young, early age. And again, the, the whole reason of what causes this is very complex. I'm not an, an expert. I'm going to be sharing with you on the resource sheet we'll make available to you a whole lot more information and data on this. You can get a lot more information from all of that. But I will share with you some of the factors that other people have shared with me. Some of the people that I have known who have same-sex attraction and from some of the stories that I have read and heard about. Here's some of the factors that can lead people to think that they were born gay. One is emotional brokenness. In other words, very early in their life, they experience some emotional brokenness. They have a very low same-sex gender esteem. In other words, they feel different. The, a little boy feels very different from the other little boys. A, a little girl feels very different from the other little girls. And, and because they feel different, they often end up being ostracized by their same sex. Maybe you have a, a young male who is very sensitive or he's very artistic and, and the other boys aren't very sensitive and, and they're more into the sports thing and he doesn't really fit in. Maybe he's not athletic and all the other boys seem to be interested in, in athletics and he's interested in other things. Or maybe you have a girl who's very athletic and all the other little girls seem to be interested in, in playing house and so forth. So you have this, they, they feel a little disassociated from their same sex. And then later on, they find themselves being attracted to their same sex. So emotional brokenness can figure into it. Another thing that, that will figure into it that can be a cause can be sexual exploitation where someone of the same sex exploited them at a younger age sexually. Or there can be just sexual experimentation at a young age where they have a sexual experience with someone of the same sex and, and they found that 
uh, you know, kind of exciting, and so they get confused, and they think, well, maybe I am actually gay. And I just want you to know, when you, when you rattle off some of these things, my heart hurts. My heart hurts for people who go through emotional brokenness, especially at a young age, who experience sexual exploitation and even sexual experimentation. So we've, we've dealt with one question. Let's deal with a second question. Here's the second question. Isn't homosexuality unchangeable? I mean, if, if, if you cannot change it, how could anyone judge it as wrong? And I take us back to the first week when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, where remember there was a list of some sinful behavior, and one of those elements in the list was homosexual behavior. And then Paul says to those believers in Corinth, and such were some of you. He's saying, yes, you, you had displayed some of these behaviors in your life, but when you came to know Jesus Christ, you were changed. There was victory. I mean, God is in the transformation business. So let's go back and think about that for a moment. And there's multiple kinds of sinful behavior in the list, but let's just focus on someone who is a homosexual, practicing homosexual, and he says to them, and such were some of you. What was he really saying? Was he saying, hey, those of you who used to be gay, you're not gay anymore. In fact, you're probably all happily married to the opposite sex now. Was he saying that? Well, possibly. It's likely that some of them who had been gay and they had come to Christ and experienced Jesus' transformation in their life had likely gone on and married the opposite sex. And I, I have a friend that I've known for a number of years who had very deep same-sex attraction issues. And, you know, God got a hold of his heart and God worked on his heart and eventually he saw that he had some attraction for the opposite sex and he got married and he's been married and he's been on the mission field for a number of years serving Jesus Christ. When he said, such were some of you, it's likely that some of them had actually gotten married to the opposite sex, but it's also likely that some of them didn't see their same-sex attractions really abating or diminishing, and so they made a choice not to move into homosexual behavior, which is where sin comes in, but instead to practice and live a life of chastity and purity. And I have another friend that I've known for more than 30 years, and in his situation, as Jesus Christ invaded his life, he never had an emergence of opposite-sex attraction. And so he made the choice in his life to live a life of chastity, which he's done now for multiple decades. When he says, and such were some of you, I think what he is not saying is that for all of them, same-sex attraction vanished immediately. What he is saying is that all of you are not practicing homosexuals anymore, and you've had victory in your life. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Joe Dallas, and Joe Dallas himself is a former homosexual. He wrote a book entitled The Gay Gospel, and part of what he does in the book is he dialogues with common pro-gay arguments, and then he has a response back. Here's part of what he wrote in that book. Here's a common pro-gay argument. 
It goes like this. Well, I don't believe God wants me to deny something I've had all my life, something I've tried to change. That just doesn't sound like God to me. And the response that Joe Dallas writes is this. Well, that's funny. It sounds exactly like God to me. And it sounds like he requires of you the same thing he requires of all of us. He asks us to deny something we've had all our lives, ourselves, and take up our crosses daily to follow him. He knows we've tried to change ourselves, and he knows we can't. But Jesus never said we had to change ourselves. He told us to follow him and to live obediently. The inward change is up to him. With God, predisposition is not predestination. So we've dealt with the question, isn't homosexuality inborn? We've dealt with the question, isn't it unchangeable? That leads us to a third question, and that is this. Is this really important? I mean, shouldn't we just leave people with same-sex attraction alone? I mean, is this really that important? Shouldn't they have the same rights that we have? Shouldn't they have the civil right to marriage? Well, I want to point out a few things that I think are pretty important. Same-sex marriage laws aside, those who are same-sex attracted already have the right to cohabit with someone of the same sex. They already have the right to be a parent. Now, there are some relationship rights that they don't have. But, you know, those relationship rights could actually be legally changed. In other words, we could change the laws of the land. For you have same-sex couples who've been committed to one another for a while. We could change the law that would qualify each one for one another's social, social security benefits, if I can get it out. We could change the law in that way. We could change the law for, regarding their medical rights and, and being able to serve one another. We could change that law. We could do all of that without deconstructing marriage. We don't need to deconstruct marriage to get that done. So when we ask the question, is it really that important, there's a couple parts to the answer, and I think the answer is yes, it's very important. And part of the reason why it's important is God has addressed, as we have seen in the Bible, homosexual behavior. He is the creator. He is God. He is the judge. And one day, everybody's going to stand before him. And so we need to reflect what he reflects about that kind of behavior. But there is a second part to the answer, is this really important? And that leads us into the element of looking at the perils, what's awaiting us downstream, and we're going to look at two of them regarding what is ahead for us as a culture downstream. Peril number one, this is part of that very difficult waterhole that's awaiting us, is what I call the revolution stage three. And you're going, what in the world are you talking about the the revolution stage three. And what we're going to do, men and women, for a few moments is we want to rewind several decades back. And we want to talk about the revolution, meaning, in essence, the sexual revolution in our culture. Stage number one of this revolution was the sexual revolution of the 1960s. That's my generation. And we had certain values that related to marriage 
in the 60s, but because we wanted to get free of all the restrictions, we began to break those rules, particularly as they related to sex and marriage. And we have paid the price as a culture. I'm not proud of my generation. You know that in 1964, in the United States of America, 6% of children were born out of wedlock, outside of marriage. In 2010, 41%, nearing 50% of children are born outside of marriage. And the sexual revolution of the 60s, men and women, has greatly undermined marriage in our culture. That's stage one. Stage two of the revolution is what we're right in the middle of and have been for a while, and that's the homosexual revolution. And a big part of what the homosexual revolution is wanting to do is to build on the revolution of the 60s, and that is to finish off breaking the egg of marriage. You know, to, to break the egg of marriage, to break the classic understanding of marriage between a male and a female, the understanding that has been true for all of the centuries of human life and all of multiple um, cultures, wherever they may be. And here's what's interesting about that. Once the egg of marriage is fully broken, all will be scrambled. Once we break the egg of marriage and it's no longer a marriage between a male and a female, it just means everything is going to get scrambled, which really is the next stage, which is what I've called stage three of the revolution. And the next stage of the sexual revolution is summarized by a word called polyamory. Polyamory. You may or may not have heard that term. The word poly means many, and amory refers to love. And the next stage that's coming downstream very quickly can already see it in our view, is this idea of polyamory, multiple people in the same sexual relationship. Three, four, five, six people. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, really? I mean, come on. Don't be ridiculous. Listen, men and women, this stage has already unfolded in front of us. Newsweek magazine in 2009 published an article entitled Polyamory, the Next Sexual Revolution. See, they recognize what's happening. There's already a book on polyamory that has been printed called New Love Without Limits. It's by Deborah Annapol. There is a magazine that is published on a regular basis in our country on polyamory. It's entitled Loving More. We've already seen this come into our living rooms through the television. We have programs like Sister Wives. We have programs like Big Love. And I do not get Showtime, but I'm aware that on Showtime, there's actually a program entitled Polyamory, Married and Dating. And it's just, a, it's, a, it's just a hodgepodge of multiple relationships sort of in one environment, one home, and a hodgepodge of bisexuality going every which direction. 
And there are prophets out there today in the form of college professors who are promoting polyamory even as I speak. There are college professors at the University of Michigan, at New York University, at Cornell University, at USC, at Columbia University, and multiple other universities, and they're actively promoting among the college students this idea of polyamory. You see, men and women, you break the egg of marriage and everything gets scrambled. In 2012, There was a professor at Columbia University by the name of David Epstein. David is 46 years old, and he was charged with incest because he had been involved in a three-year consensual sexual relationship with his 24-year-old daughter. So you have a 46-year-old professor who's been involved in a three-year consensual relationship with his 24-year-old daughter, and he gets charged with incest. And his attorney, as part of David Epstein's defense, said this. He says, if it's okay for homosexuals to do whatever they want, how is this any different? This is the stage that is awaiting us. In fact, do you know that now there are a lot of voices saying, hey, the whole idea of male and female, it's just outdated. We need to abolish it. We have in several states a push to eliminate the male-female line on birth certificates. I mean, who are we to say that somebody's male and who somebody is female? You see, the current in our culture is hurtling us ahead. One of the perils is this stage three of the sexual revolution, polyamory. I want to talk about a second peril that is waiting us downstream, and that is this, the loss of freedom. The loss of freedom. You know, this has already happened in places around the world. In Sweden, they passed a number of laws, and a pastor by the name of Ake Green was arrested in his own church for quoting from the pulpit some of the same verses that I went over last week. And he got arrested for that because that was illegal to do. And it may be coming down the road that it will be illegal here. And it may very well be that I spend some time in the Cleveland County Jail because I have taken the opportunity to talk about what the Word of God has to say. In Canada, it's already, the law is already there that if you make critical statements about people who are homosexuals, that you will receive a hefty financial fine and be sent to prison. So we're just trying to understand what's happening in our culture. We've, We've dealt with some questions. We've dealt with some of the perils that are awaiting us downstream. But what's most important to me, and this is what I like to know, is what should I do? How are we supposed to live given where we are right now? And so we want to talk about three responses we are to have to the same-sex culture of our day. Here's the very first response we ought to have. We need to pray. Put an exclamation point behind that. We need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves. 
that God will be working in us. We need to pray for those who are same-sex attracted. We need to pray for our government leaders. We need to pray for God's spirit to work in our day, in our time, in our culture. We need to pray. How much are we praying about this? We need to pray. When we pray, it unleashes the power of God to work. So the first response we should have is to pray. Second response, in light of the same-sex culture current of our day, is we need to honor marriage. We need to honor marriage. Do you know we're called up in the New Testament to do that? In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, to the believing community, this statement is made by the author to the Hebrews. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Talking to the believing community. Let marriage be held in honor. Let marriage be valued. Let marriage be guarded. And I'm a practical guy. Hey, that's the directive. Let marriage be held in honor among all. But how do we do that? Well, first of all, we do that by how we live. And in, in the next few moments together, I want you to know I'm going to be very direct. It's, it's a directness that comes out of love in my heart, but I'm going to be very direct. If we're going to hold marriage in honor among all in the believing community, how do we do that? By how we live. You know what that really means? That means especially young people, but people of all ages, Stop living together before marriage. That's what it means. It means that we practice purity outside of marriage. How do we do this? It's by how we live. It means that those of us who are married need to be committed to be faithful to our marriage vows so far as it depends on you. I know sometimes someone else can break that. But if we're going to hold marriage in honor before all, we need to be faithful to our marriage vows. It means we need to make right choices, right choices as a husband, right choices as a wife, right choices as a parent. That's the way we hold marriage in honor before everybody. We do it by how we live. It means that we must jettison the toxic waste of pornography from our relationships. That's what pornography is. It's toxic waste to a relationship. We do it by how we live. If you are struggling in your marriage relationship, and we all do at some level, do you just keep that quiet? Oh, I hope it somehow works out. No, don't do that. Share your struggle with someone who is a godly example to you. Let them know we are struggling. We need help. Take advantage of all the resources that are available in the whole subject matter of marriage and relationships. We have more material available to us than anyone in the history of the world has ever had. Take advantage of those things. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.11. To the believing community, he says, Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We need to hold marriage in honor. We need to value it, and we need to guard it. So how do we honor marriage? Well, first of all, by how we live, and secondly, this is very important, by speaking up. 
There are a lot of states that are putting forth DOMAs, the Defense of Marriage Acts. We need to support those things. The believing community needs to support that. We need to champion God's design for marriage. If not us, who is it going to be? Let marriage be held in honor among all. So the first thing, first response is to pray. Second response is to honor marriage. The third one, which is very, very important when it comes to the same-sex community, is that we need to reach out relationally to them. And not every church and not every Christian community is doing that. I read about a, a town where a large gay camping resort opened up. By the way, do you know where the largest gay resort in the southwest United States is located? Anybody know? Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. But in this particular situation, there was a large gay camping resort that opened up in the community. And how were they going to respond to that? Well, what a number of the people in that church did is they decided to go out and purchase some land that was right next to the resort. And then they promptly stocked the entire land with hogs and created a hog farm with its accompanying stench. And the idea was to send a public statement about what they felt about homosexuality to the people that were at that gay resort. And that's not the way to reach people for Christ. We need to reach out relationally to them. And I want to reject something. It's a false notion that seems to exist in some of the Christian community is that the only way that we can show compassion to people who are in the gay movement is to affirm their choices. I reject that notion. You see, Jesus built relationship with people who were marginalized. People, Jesus built relationships with people who were social, societal rejects, with tax collectors, with working women in the sex trade. Jesus did all of that without affirming their choices. And so we need to reach out relationally. You might remember a little while ago that Dan Cathy, who is the CEO of Chick-fil-A, made a statement that caused a huge reaction. You remember this? In June of 2012, he inadvertently started a national controversy because he made the statement on the side and it was picked up. He, the statement he made is that God is the one who defines marriage. You remember this? And that just sprung these incredible protests and attacks on Chick-fil-A and calls for a boycott of Chick-fil-A. And one of the ones leading that parade was a young man by the name of Shane Winmeyer, who is an LGBT leader. He is the founder of Campus Pride, the national LGBT college student organization. And Shane Winmeyer launched a national campaign against Chick-fil-A. Now, if you're Dan Cathy, how do you respond to that? Well, you know what he did? He reached out relationally to Shane Winmeyer. And Dan Cathy called him, and they spoke initially over the phone for an hour. And Dan listened intently to all of Shane's concerns. And what is really interesting is that phone call led to Dan and Shane becoming friends. And Dan invited 
Shane to um, be his honored guest at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, which eventually led to Shane writing an article entitled, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan, Kathy, and Chick-fil-A. And in that article, he described this friendship that they had developed and formed, and he, he wrote this. He said, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, and even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ. Men and women, that is the spirit in which we must reach out relationally. Now, again, I'm real practical. You'd say, okay, I'm supposed to reach out relationally. I mean, how do I get started in this? I mean, how do I do that? I mean, I have some friends who are same-sex attracted. I may have some family members. I mean, how do we do this? Well, we extend authentic interest to them. Here's a key word. Listen. Ask them to share about their life. Ask them to share about their story. Ask them to share how they developed in their whole perspective and how they got to where they are today. Seek to hear their heart. And then we have an opportunity to share the love and the grace and the hope that we have found in the person of Jesus. Michael Brown is a very effective author in seeking to hold marriage in honor, and uh, he's interacted a lot with the LGBT community, and he made this statement to them. He wrote this statement. I want to read part of it to you. Here's what he says to those who are LGBT. He says, we understand, of course, that in your eyes, our biblical convictions may feel like hate, and it is hurtful to us that you feel that way. The fact is that we really do love you more than you realize or understand, and because we love you, we will continue to speak the truth, convinced that it is the truth that sets us free. Love does what is right even when it is scorned and mocked and ridiculed. So he goes on to write this, and so we will not stop loving you, even if you call us bigots, even if you claim that we are depriving you of your civil rights, even if you mock us and call us Bible bashers. We will pray for you and reach out to you. Whether you understand it or not, we are here to help. We do not look down on you or despise you since for us the ultimate issue is not homosexuality or heterosexuality. All human beings fall short of God's standards in many ways and all of us, heterosexual and homosexual alike, need God's mercy through the blood of Jesus. All of us need forgiveness and all of us need to turn from our sins and ask God for grace to lead a holy and virtuous life. We need to reach out relationally. We need to utilize the show and tell approach. Remember the show and tell approach that we had in elementary school? First, we show them that we care, we listen. We pray for them. We let them know we're praying for them. We forge a friendship with them. And then the tell part where we share what Jesus has done in our own life. And if you're same-sex attracted and you have those experiences in your life, I'm glad that you're here. I want you to know that I would love to hear your story. You know, come talk to me. Send me an email. 
Now, we've mentioned it several times that we have put together a resource sheet. Navigating today's same-sex culture resources, we have a whole list of them here, and we have some of these printed out that are available on the table in the hallway, and you're welcome to take one of these, but also, and this is maybe even more important, we have this available on our webpage at wildwoodchurch.org backslash current, or you can just click on the series graphic and it will come up. And the reason why that is helpful is we have links to a number of websites, and some of the links are rather long, and so it's a little tedious to copy them off of the sheet, but there'll be live links on the webpage. And this sheet will be very helpful. There's a books here on, on what to do if you have a family member or a coworker or a friend who's dealing with homosexuality. There's a local counseling resource mentioned here. There's helpful websites that are listed here. There's video testimonies of dozens of people who found victory in Christ from homosexuality. And also we have here some written testimonies of victory in Christ. We have uh, books that deal with the Bible and homosexuality, all of the verses that are being used and answers to all of those, plus we have some additional links. So we encourage you to take advantage of this resource sheet. This is what helps us to equip ourselves to reach out relationally to people. We understand the issues. We have the information. So, so, so important. But I want to just say this as we close today, that the the message of salvation is the same for all of us. In Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And the Lord, he will have compassion on him for he will abundantly pardon and no matter what your life experience is, if you do not know Jesus Christ personally, I want to just say, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He took your punishment and my punishment on the cross, and he desires to transform your heart and life. And we do that by having faith and trust of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come now, and we're going to sing a closing song. And we're going to be celebrating something that's so very important. No matter what the sin story may be in our life, we're going to sing words that say that our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. And he is awesome in his transforming power. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Father, we just thank you so much for this series. We've been able to tackle this subject matter of this incredible current culture situation that we are experiencing. And Father, I would pray for anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, no matter what their story may be, that they would remember the words of Jesus when he said, the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. And I think of the words in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16 that says this to us as human beings, stop right where you are. Look for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Amen.